This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, political science professor from Indiana University, Jeff Isaac, a good friend of the program. Jeff, thanks for being on Big Talk. Thanks for having me. He is a fellow who has written and has opinionated, <laughs> pontificated yep. perhaps, about many political, social, and cultural concepts. Uh, he's the author of uh, Errant Camus and Modern Rebellion. He's the author of Democracy in Dark Times. He's the author of The Poverty of Progressivism. And he's got a brand new one coming out, Against Trump, Notes from Near One, a release just like moments ago, practically, well, eh, Jeff? Moments from now it will be uh, Moments from now. We finally are finished with the most ballyhooed midterm election since, I'm going to say, Jeff, 1994. Perhaps. It is finally over. I am no longer going to get the daily email from the Joe Donnelly campaign saying the race is tied. <laughs> it sort of didn't turn out that way. I've been getting like uh, 10 text messages a day from Beto O'Rourke's campaign. I think they don't realize I live in Indiana. They were like wanting me to show up at a polling booth or something. Okay, so what has happened? Uh, Congress is now deadlocked. But in a way, isn't that a good thing? We've got Republicans and Democrats, each in charge of a House of Congress. It's a good thing that Congress is deadlocked since the Congress used to be controlled by the, the Republicans and the presidency was also controlled by an idiot narcissist president named Donald Trump. It's very good now that there's a check on that. Year of the Woman. No question. Not only in the nation, but in Monroe County. Yes. Very exciting. Very important. And I need now to just give a shout out to Liz Watson because I think Liz is, was, is an amazing person and political leader, ran an incredible campaign, and I think was an inspiration to many. She didn't win the election, but I think she did something perhaps more important in terms of the future of democratic politics in the state of Indiana. And I'll maybe say more about that. I'm writing about that. But in any case, yes, you're of the woman. I'm going to say right now, let's not pretend anymore that Indiana is anything but a rock-hard, solid Republican state. Well, that's obviously true. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that it's in the DNA of people who live in the state of Indiana. I, I think the question of how to, how to change that is a complicated political and cultural question. I think that uh, the, the Liz Watson campaign speaks to how to change that. Huh. Liz ran a really strong campaign. You know, the margin of victory of Hollingsworth was pretty much the same as the margin of victory of Mike Braun. Yeah. There are many reasons why uh, uh, Liz didn't win, but I take a lot of hope from what she was able to accomplish. And I think that the Donnelly approach to the Democratic Party in the state of Indiana is uh, an ethical and a political uh, um, disaster. Why should I mince words? So that paradigm, the Donnelly-Evan-Bye mode of appealing to 
people who are sort of quote-unquote on the fence or even Republicans. This democratic strategy apparently doesn't work. A couple of things. I want to clarify or, or change the terms of that. Okay. Uh, f first of all, um, Liz Watson's entire campaign centered on reaching beyond the Democratic base, and it was a working family's agenda. Um, the, where I would differentiate for her campaign, which again was not a statewide campaign, right. Donnelly's was, I, 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 I wouldn't blame Evan Bayh, we, we can talk about Evan Bayh another time, for the campaign strategy or tactics of, of Joe Donnelly. Uh, Donnelly was running against a rabid right-wing Republican yes. who was a hardcore Trumpist, and he chose not simply to play to the middle, but to play to the right and to try to uh, prove that he was a more credible Trumpist than his opponent. That was, I think, a huge mistake. That's, that turned you off, well, personally. Well, turned me off, but that's, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not normal. <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> um, I don't, I, it, it, was a, it was a losing strategy. Uh, I think uh, that doesn't mean that there was an easily winning strategy, but the fact of the matter is whoever was primed to vote Trumpist in the state preferred a real Trumpist to a, a facsimile yeah. Trumpist. A faux um, Trumpist. And what, what a Donnelly, uh, so the difference, the difference between, let's say, Donnelly, uh, just on this score, these are all complicated questions, but the difference between the Donnelly campaign and that approach and Liz Watson's campaign, campaign and its approach is that um, Donnelly lost and in the process disillusioned and alienated a lot of his own supporters. Right. Liz Watson uh, lost the election, but I think won a lot of hearts, of, won a lot of hearts and minds, yeah. and actually uh, uh, gave hope and uh, a sense of empowerment to a lot of her supporters. And I think there's there's a there's a way to move forward from that. I don't think there's a way to move forward from Donnelly. I hope Donnelly's done politically. I hope Liz is not done politically. But yeah. she did a great job. A woman. And as we said, this was the year of the woman. We sensed that in the Democratic primary in May. And this year, uh, during the general election, we have now eight of nine Monroe County Circuit judges are women. Uh, the chief justice uh, of the circuit is a woman. In fact, Mary Ellen Dekoff, that judge, mm -hmm. made the ruling yesterday to keep the polls open an extra hour which was terrific, and I think that she's a, a, an excellent woman. The year of the woman, it's important. I think around like over 80% of the women who were elected uh, in the House were Democrats. I, I am a supporter of the Democratic Party. I don't demonize all Republicans, but uh, there are really excellent women political leaders, and then there are political leaders who are women who stand for things that, well, like, for example, Nikki Haley, just as right. an example, who I can't get behind, and the fact that she's a woman yeah. doesn't mean much to me. Right. In terms of not demonizing the Republicans, uh, I find this interesting. In 2008, we on the left, we Democrats, in a lot of ways, demonized Mitt Romney. Now we're almost welcoming him into the Senate because, as you can see, he won the Utah Senate seat that was up for grabs yesterday. He's now going to the Senate, and now he is the hope to keep tabs on, keep a check on the president. The check on the president 
will be the Democratic House and will be activists and people starting to th uh, think right now about running in 2020, the check on the, uh, uh, if there's a check on the president. I think a free press can be a check on the president. It, also, the president is able to do a lot without being checked, which is uh, uh, very uh, disturbing. But I don't have great hopes in Mitt Romney. I do think that Romney, you know, he could turn out to be the Jeff Flake of the next Senate session. Uh, yeah. Make of that what you will. <laughs> Trump just completely, like, disparaged Flake in his quote-unquote press conference. Right. And, you know, Flake, I think, um, did very little of consequence to stand in the way of Trump. Jeff, it's amazing to me that the Republicans have this innate ability to get behind the standard bearer that the Democrats don't have. Yeah, well, it's amazing to me, too. I don't know how long that will last. I mean, in fact, the, the, the Republican primary was much more fractious than the Democratic primary. And yet, in the end, almost everyone with the partial exception of John Kasich, basically fell in line. Right. And um, yeah, there is, there is, I think, a lot more healthy disagreement within the Democratic Party. I think it could be very productive. It could also be very counterproductive. But I think that there are really important issues that need to be discussed and debated in a healthy, respectful way. And then the party needs to move forward. There's not a single formula for victory in every race in the country. Um, and I think it's my biggest concern, which is actually the animating purpose of that collection of essays that's being published this against week Trump. against Trump. Uh, a lot of what's in, in that book and a lot of what I write for public seminar is about the danger that I believe Trump poses to constitutional democracy. But a lot of it is about the ways that it's very important for people who are against Trump to both understand Trump and also... Um, act politically in a way that has ethical integrity, but also has a certain sense of political uh, pragmatics. And so I'm really interested in making clearer um, the ways that one thinks about who is one's political friend and, uh, and one's political ally, and that it's possible to be an adversary without being an enemy, uh -huh. and that it's important to make alliances uh, often. Um, it's also important sometimes to, you know, to stand with conviction. And I think there's no kind of a priori way of specifying that. But I do think within the Democratic Party, there will be some serious contention about what the future of that party is. I know what I think the future of that party ought to be. But, but, but what I mainly think is procedurally, there needs to be a, an open debate. And there needs to be uh, a respectful hearing of a range of perspectives. And at some point, after a primary... There must be a coming together to defeat whoever the Republican candidate is, probably Trump. Would you say that the Democrats have learned their lesson after the Bernie Sanders debacle of 2016? I know we don't have uh, infinite amounts of time, but I'm not sure what you mean by the Bernie Sanders deb debacle. Okay, I'll yeah. explain. And that being that many people in the Democratic Party felt Bernie Sanders wasn't given a fair shake. Yes, First of all, I think that the procedural concerns that a lot of Sanders supporters had, some of them have been addressed in terms of changing party rules. Uh -huh. But I also think that there's just a greater sensitivity to those issues. I also think that a lot of very exciting candidates 
who ran in this race, some of them winning house seats, some of them um, not winning, although I believe that in the case, well, Better O'Rourke is a good example, but uh, both in the governor's election in Florida, Andrew Gillum conceded that race, but my understanding is all the votes are not yet in. The governor's election in Georgia, hopefully we'll go to a runoff that maybe Stacey Abrams can win, but a lot of really excellent left liberal candidates have run uh, have run really strong campaigns in up in uphill battles and almost won. Yeah. Um, and I think that there there's a very strong progressive element within the Democratic Party that is aligned with Sanders, aligned with Elizabeth Warren, and I yeah I think that the the party is moving forward from from 2016. Sure. Jeff, by my readings and by my observations, uh, I have concluded that uh, perhaps the three front runners for 2020 are Elizabeth Warren for the Democratic nomination, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker. But after yesterday's results, and uh, I do want to say we're recording this the day after the election, so <laughs> in any case, Beto O'Rourke lost. Sherrod Brown won, but they're both being touted for 2020. They're both fine potential candidates. O'Rourke, I think, is an extraordinary politician who's very charismatic. I don't know who the front runners are. Uh, I've heard a lot of talk that Bernie Sanders wants to run, and I think if Bernie Sanders wants to run, he might be a primary front runner. That doesn't mean he would get a majority. Yeah. Uh, but I, th I, I think it's just too early uh, uh, to know. These are all strong candidates. While I greatly appreciate Sanders, I actually hope that he doesn't run for president. Um, Why not? Well, actually, you know, he, he was very energetic on the campaign trail this year. But, I mean, yeah. he's, he's pretty old. Yeah. Um, I think that he's mobilized lots of voters. I think that it's possible, it's possible that someone like Elizabeth Warren would be a stronger candidate to articulate broadly what I would describe as a left liberal perspective on economic issues, but I'm not sure about that. I, I don't know. Bernie Sanders seems to me the kind of guy you want yelling in as opposed to the guy yelling out. Well, he's certainly proven effective in that again yeah. I'm, I'm i'm not saying anything negative about him and i certainly think that given his showing last in 2016 uh, my preference would be to just put that race behind altogether yeah but but given his he, he's a very he's a very important figure now on the national scene and he's worked really hard to do what he's done and he's certainly entitled as entitled as any other national figure to put himself forward if he wants to People voted like crazy this week. Amazing. As a matter of fact, Monroe County Clerk uh, Nicole Brown was quoted in the Herald Times as saying, this is unprecedented. She was talking about the uh, turnout here yes. in Monroe County. People were driven to go to the polls. Will that continue in 2020? For, first of all, it, it was unprecedented for, for a, a midterm election. Yeah, right. I think there'll be a lot of mobilization in 2020 because of the presidential election. And I think all along, everyone on the left, everyone not in the camp of Trump, 
I'm talking even about lots of never Trump Republicans and yeah. lots of Republicans like Steve Smith or Joe Scarborough or whoever who were terrified by Trump. There, there's a, a broad understanding that 2018 was a really important election, but 2020 is also a really, really crucial election yeah. with regard to everything. I, so I think there'll be very high turnout. In Monroe County, the turnout, because of Monroe County, uh, you know, there was a lot of um, Democratic turnout. Um, in, in the nation as a whole, one of the reasons why there was very high turnout is because while Democrats mobilized a lot of base voters, Trump also mobilized a lot of base voters. He sure and, did. And, and that is very concerning. And while I choose to regard, for example, the the closeness of the elections, the, the, the O'Rourke race in Texas, Gillum in Florida, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, however they ultimately are decided, the closeness of those elections I take great heart from. It's also the case, particularly in Georgia and Florida, that vicious racist campaigns were run against African-American candidates, that there was voter suppression, and that this all seems to have succeeded. Right. And that is greatly disturbing. It's as disturbing as it was that almost 60 million people voted for Donald Trump in uh, 2016. It's as it's perhaps more disturbing that two years later, um, his base is even more strongly supporting him, that in the run-up to the election, his popularity rating seems to be going up. There are a lot of people, a lot of people, in, like just like in the state of Indiana, who went for this hardcore, hard-right vision. So I think it's going to be hotly contested in 2020. The House has, is going to turn Democrat on January 3rd. I think that Donald Trump is going to use that as sort of an aggrievement card. And he's going to set up a Nancy Pelosi as the bet noir. I was listening to a lot of radio commercials from some of the big cities in the, in the area that ran specifically against Nancy Pelosi for this election here. Do you want Nancy Pelosi to be second in line for the presidency? She's going to be the focal point. I mean, I, I don't think that Nancy Pelosi is an extremely compelling public political figure. Even in her speech last night, it was not very strong as a speech. She is a great or she's a very good legislative tactician. There will be efforts to demonize her. The fact that this was the year of the woman, the fact that there are so many strong Democratic uh, senators now who are potential uh, presidential candidates, I think there will be an effort to demonize Pelosi, probably, although Trump was making nice to her today. But Trump did many strange things today in his press conference. In his what do you mean today? Well, in his press... <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think... But, you know, demonizing... Is part of what he does. Um, if you look at the map of how things turned out, not only in 2016, but this year, 2018, you'll see huge swatches of the continental United States as red, tiny little dots as blue, meaning the big population centers, the majority of people went Democrat. Yes. So it was sort of a rural-urban divide. Will that continue, and why does it even exist? <laughs> it's likely to continue at least for a while, and its, imp its impact is heightened 
by aspects of the American constitutional system yeah. that are highly undemocratic, like the Senate, two senators per state, regardless of population, right? Um, aspects of the Electoral College. So there are incentives for uh, conservatives to run in rural areas, and they have more, I think, national power than they would have in a more broadly representative national electoral system. So I think that the divide will continue. There is an urban-rural divide. Um, in terms of why it exists, a lot of that is cultural, cult uh, the cultural diversity of urban areas. Uh, the, the blue areas tend to be the areas that have um, a lot of educational institutions yeah. and uh, a more highly educated populations. I don't mean to suggest that people in rural areas are kind of stupid. No, it's a, but it's a different kind of political socialization mm -hmm. and different kinds of history, uh, different kinds and often different kinds of religiosity that are playing a role. Um, and I think in a lot of small town America, there is an understandable uh, fear of change and America's changing in lots of ways. And the demographics are astounding. Yes. In terms of what is now and what is to come. It, what's also astounding and uh, is the extent to which uh, conservative Republicans are, are able to win by offering nothing more than fear-mongering. Yeah. I mean, uh, all of this stuff about protecting Indiana, protecting the borders, mm -hmm. is it would be absurd if it weren't so, so awful that that could help generate a victory for Mike Braun. The notion that we are being invaded by people from the South who we need to protect ourselves from. And that's not a solution to anything. Meanwhile, he's supporting a set of tax policies and economic policies, which are bringing no benefits to ordinary uh, uh, Hoosiers, but they're, but they're being given uh, uh, a sense of social status and their resentments are being... Um, Stoked, by the way, in the same way that like you scratch a mosquito bite and it just gets bigger. Yeah. The day before the election, I got a robocall from a person, I got this on my voicemail, a person with the thickest Middle Eastern accent you can imagine saying, we've got to vote tomorrow. We've got to turn out. The future is at stake. The House and the Senate are at stake. Make sure to vote. This is from the so-and-so-and-so-and-so Arab-American Support Society. Some generic name that, you know what? I don't believe this was real at all. This was phony baloney. Yeah. They were using fear. Whoever sent this call. Yes. And then, of course, we, we, we really, we can't forget the domestic terrorism of around 10 days ago in this country. Right. And, and, and the way in which at the fringes, um, radical right, neo-Nazi, white supremacist uh, groups are kind of being uh, encouraged. So I, I just want to quickly say at yeah. today's quote unquote press conference in which Donald Trump decompensated for 90 minutes before the eyes of the American people, uh, at one point, I think it was Christian, uh, Kristen Welker from MSNBC, asked him a question about if he's concerned at all about the rise of, of right-wing extremism and anti-Semitism and violence against minorities. His answer was, he, Donald Trump, cares about this more than anybody else, and his, 
evidence was that Benjamin Netanyahu loves him and that he's moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem and he's done more for Israel than anyone else. He was utterly tone deaf to the question. Right. Um, Now, I think he is tone deaf to the question. I also think that he um, is enamored of uh, racist ideas. I think that he has racist sentiments himself. And he just is happy to throw uh, kind of fuel on that fire. He is poisoning the public culture of our country. And even though the Democrats retook the House, and even though there are things to be heartened uh, about about the election, um, it is very disturbing that for at least another two more years, he will have the bully pulpit and be able to poison the public culture of our society on a daily basis. But this election has further diversified the legislatures around the nation. Let me just uh, give you a couple of examples. The first openly gay governor, Jared Polis of Colorado. Uh, The first Native American women in the House, Sharice Davids of Kansas. Deb Holland of New Mexico. The first uh, openly gay uh, state house, Indiana state house legislator was elected, uh, J.D. Ford. Things are changing. There is cause for optimism, no or yes? Uh, yes, I, 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 and I want to say two things about this, because the demographic diversity that you're talking about is really important. It's also important to emphasize another kind of diversity. And so uh, the two, the, I, wa- I would emphasize two other things. One is the, the democratic gains in state houses around the country and the possibility to reverse uh, gerrymandering in a number of states, which is very important. Um, the other is I am particularly heartened by the victory of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New yeah. York and uh, uh, Rashida Tlaib in, um, in Michigan, who's not only um, an Arab-American woman, she's also a member of Democratic Socialists of America, as is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I do think that a number of left candidates have had success and hopefully can begin to have an impact on the development of the political agenda of the Democratic Party. So that's something that I take uh, heart from. Um, I think the the most important thing about the victories that were had by Democrats yesterday on Tuesday on Election Day was simply that they were Democratic victories. Every Democratic victory, I think, was something to be prized in this context in which there was one party government and it was a party that was inclined to support uh, a would-be fascist. Yeah, yeah. Fascism light. Yes, or, or not so light. Or not so light. Well, nobody's getting mowed down in the streets no, just yet. No, not, not just yet. Just no. yet. I think it's not likely to happen. I do. And I think that, you know, core institutions of liberal democracy have some resilience. I think the results of the election are good. Um, I also think that Trump continues to have a lot of power. And um, I'm still concerned about what's going to happen when the so-called caravan (laughs) arrives at our border. And I think it could be very uh, potentially violent. Whatever he says is always fascinating. He's Jeff Isaac, political science professor at Indiana University, just coming out with a brand new book, Against Trump, Notes from Year One. Also, and this, I'm surprised you didn't mention this, third Saturday of every month at C3, the Postmodern Jazz Quartet. How could you not mention that? Oh, my God. And I've been there and I've heard you. You've bought me a drink. I, I have. <laughs> Jeff Isaac, thanks for being on Big Talk. My pleasure, Big Mike.